It's hard to believe, but the Christmas season is upon us. And I probably, like most of you, love the Christmas season for a whole host of reasons. It's obviously a time in, in a month in the year where there just seems to be a buzz in the air, an anticipation of things to come. Uh, we get to spend extended time with with family and friends, and we enjoy traditional activities and foods that we only have this time of year. Even at church, we have fun things like decorations and Christmas parties and, and special music like we sang this morning. And of course, added to that is the cultural celebration of Christmas that even unbelievers get excited about. And so because of that, our radios and TVs and stores are all inundated with Christmas-themed entertainment and goods for purchase. All of those things in and of themselves are fine and good, and they're part of the enjoyment of the Christmas season, but behind them lurks a great danger for us. Because if we're not careful, all of the enjoyable aspects of the Christmas season can become the goal in and of themselves so that we lose the real reason that we celebrate Christmas altogether. And when this happens, it's not that we forget all about Jesus and the birth of Messiah, but sometimes it just gets wrapped up in the, the whimsical nature of the cultural celebration of Christmas. And we put up our nativity scenes and we sing our songs, but our hearts are filled not with wonder at the incarnation, but rather with feelings of nostalgia. And the story of Christ can become almost whitewashed in our minds so that we don't really about it, but it doesn't have the effect on our hearts that it's meant to have. So with that in mind, for the next two Sundays, as Drew mentioned, we're going to be opening God's word and going back to the incarnation, back to Matthew's account uh, to Joseph. And I want us to strip away some of the nostalgia and the, the culturally whimsical emotions that come with the Christmas season and instead take a sober look at what God has done for us in sending his perfect son. And it's my prayer that as we do that, it will enrich our celebration, not just of the season as a whole, but that it would enrich our appreciation and worship for Christ himself. Now before we begin, it's important that we understand that every gospel, each of the four gospels, were written with a specific theme in mind. All of them, of course, give an account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but each author has a specific theme about Christ that they are emphasizing in their gospel. In the gospel of Matthew, for example, where we'll be, the theme is Jesus as king. If you keep that in mind as you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll see the author develop that over and over again. Even from the opening words of the Gospel of Matthew, we see this theme in mind. The first three major sections of Matthew are really proofs of the divinity of Christ and his right to rule as king. For example, in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1, we have the Messiah's royal genealogy. It's his, his bloodline proving that he was the promised one that came through the line of David. In, beginning in verses 18 through 25, we have this second proof, the Messiah's supernatural conception. That's what we'll be studying over the next two weeks. And then even after that, proof number three, we have the Messiah's rightful worship in chapter three as the Magi come to offer him gifts and to offer him praise. But for our purposes, we're going to focus our attention on verses 18 to 25. 
So if you would, if you have your Bible, turn to chapter 1 of Matthew, and we're going to read beginning in verse 18. The author writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, as we look at these verses, what we're going to see is that Jesus' supernatural conception reveals both his identity and mission. His supernatural conception reveals both his identity and his mission. We see five different aspects of the Messiah's conception and birth in these verses. We're going to look at the first three of those aspects this morning and the final two next week. The first thing that we see beginning in verse 1 is a miraculous pregnancy. A miraculous pregnancy. Look back at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. First of all, it's important for us to understand that the the word Christ is not really part of Jesus' name. It is a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And so when we understand that, we see a a clear pattern already beginning in chapter 1 in the structure of how Matthew is writing. If you just look at the very first verse in chapter 1, Matthew 1.1, it says the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Then when you come down to verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Messiah was as follows. Uh, For some reason they chose to translate it as Christ there, but it's the same word. We're speaking of Jesus Messiah. He's making these arguments, and we're on argument number two. He is the promised Messiah. Now as we get into this account, obviously there are supernatural aspects that go along with the conception and birth narrative of Jesus Christ. But it's important for us to understand this morning that while that is true, the characters themselves, Mary and Joseph, were normal people living normal human lives. The Roman Catholic Church falsely teaches something called the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which is the idea that that Mary was born without a sin nature in the pre-fall condition of Adam and Eve. And so she lived this sinless life leading up to the birth of Christ. That just simply is not found in the scriptures. These are normal human people living real lives the way that you and I live real lives today. They were not superhuman. What happened to them only happened to them by the grace of God. And we see a glimpse into the the normality or the normalcy of their life here in the next phrase. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. 
Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. This was the normal process that every Jewish couple went through in order to become legally married. It's important to understand that a Jewish marriage at this time had two different parts. One is called the Kiddushin, that's the betrothal, that's where Mary and Joseph are. And the next was the, the, the hupa, which is the wedding itself. That word is now used to refer to the canopy under which Jewish people get married, but it really referred more to the, the wedding ceremony in its entirety. So you have two parts, the betrothal and the wedding itself. But it's important for us to not equate betrothal and engagement in our minds because they're very different things. Obviously, engagement is a serious commitment in our culture, but it can be broken with really no harm, no foul, other than some hurt feelings and emotions. But when it comes to a betrothal, this was a legal process. You were seen as legally married when you became betrothed. The idea is you're legally married, but do not yet live together. And so obviously the physical side of marriage is not a part of your life yet. It is only after the wedding ceremony that that part begins. In fact, this was such a legally binding agreement that in order to get out of a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. You had to actually go and be divorced. In addition to that, if one of the the two in that betrothal were to be sexually active outside of the relationship, it was treated like adultery. And so obviously, legally, you were considered to be husband and wife. In fact, in verse 19, it refers to Joseph as Mary's husband. That's because legally, that's how he would have been seen. Now, this is obviously different than our culture, but girls were eligible for betrothal starting at age 12, many of them actually becoming betrothed in their early teens, whereas the men were usually a few years older than that. Now, the betrothal would last for about a year and then culminate in this wedding ceremony, the hoopah. At the end of that festival, the husband would then take his wife and take her to his house. The marriage would be consummated and the two would then live together. Now with that context in mind, that means that Mary is likely in her early teens and Joseph is just a few years beyond that. And they are somewhere in this year-long waiting period between the betrothal and the wedding ceremony. So far, everything is normal and natural according to the Jewish wedding process until we come to the very next phrase. It says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, obviously, the phrase before they came together is a very polite, veiled way of referring to the physical aspect of marriage. The marriage had not yet been consummated. That becomes really important to understand because suddenly Mary is found to be pregnant. Now, in both the Old and the New Testament, God is very clear that fornication is a sin. That is, sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sinful in the eyes of God. It always has been. Unfortunately, obviously, in our culture today, that's been almost lost. It's been completely rejected, and it's commonplace for couples to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage or live together. But understand, that's never been God's design. It's still not God's design. It's still just as sinful today, but the stigma socially is not near what it was back in the day of Mary and Joseph. 
Because of that, we might be tempted to miss the shocking nature of this statement. If you were a Jewish person in this day and you read that line before they came together, she was found to be with child, it would have been a moment to gasp. It would have been shocking news. In the Jewish culture at this time, virginity and chastity were rightly held in high esteem. To be involved physically outside of marriage was considered scandalous and incredibly shameful. It was devastating to one's reputation, and it would stay with them. It would be a stain that would stay on their reputation for the rest of their lives. In fact, the reason that it was so serious is because in Deuteronomy chapter 22, God speaks very clearly to this concept. I want to read Deuteronomy 22 beginning in verse 13 down through verse 21. This is part of the Mosaic law. It says, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then tur- it turns out, turns against her and changes, charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he's charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin. But this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father, because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel." And she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. But if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, you have to put yourself back in this setting. These are the verses that would have been very familiar to the people at that time. They would have been familiar to Mary, familiar to Joseph. Sexual purity mattered so much to God that if a young woman was found to be married to a man, having claimed to be a virgin, and then being found out not to be, she could be stoned to death for such a sin. Capital punishment. This is a serious, serious matter in the eyes of God and serious then in this culture. In fact, it was so serious that Moses gives a plan of protection to these women. That's what we read in those first verses. It may have sounded strange. This is totally out of step with our culture. But here's what would have happened. As part of that marriage ceremony, when when they would have this this week-long feast for the marriage itself... The husband and wife would then go to his house, followed by the parents of the bride. Now, I know that would be horrific for most of you young couples, and you're glad we don't do that. But you would be glad if the death penalty was a possibility for you. The parents follow them to the house. After the marriage is consummated, the parents would then take either a garment or the bedsheet itself, because it was stained with blood, as a, a way of proving the, the virginity of their daughter. And they would hold on to that because if the husband ever came back and said that she was not a virgin, they had proof. That's what, the, that's what it's talking about when the elders say bring out the proof and they show the proof that their daughter was in fact pure. Now why do I go through all of that? Because you have to understand this was really serious. It was not just like Mary's found to be pregnant and it's like, well, 
that's a bummer, but okay. This is a really, really big deal. Joseph would have been mortified. Everyone who knew them and heard of this would have been mortified. And just as a side note, really quickly, to bring this into modern times, it is a good reminder to all of us that God really does take sexual sin very, very seriously. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore, but the New Testament is just as clear that God values the purity of the marriage bed. Let us never, ever forget it. Understand then, just how scandalous, how devastating this news would have been. And if you doubt that, just understand that, that even though this was not true, that Mary was virtuous, and we know that she was conceived because of the Holy Spirit, this, this rumor spread about her and Jesus, and it would stay with them for the rest of their lives. In fact, Jesus is actually made fun of by the Jews because of this scandal of him being illegitimate. We see this in John chapter 8. They get upset with Jesus and listen to what they say in verse 39. They, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, and they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. What are they saying? We're not like you. We weren't born illegitimately. Don't even know who your father is. That, that's basically what they're saying. We're the real children of God. It's a direct reference to this scandalous allegation that followed Jesus for the rest of his life, even though, of course, we know it was not true. That's why Matthew is careful to immediately say that she was pregnant, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Look back at the text. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Understand, at this point in the story, Joseph doesn't know that. So why does Matthew include it? Because he wants us to be really, really clear as we read this to never doubt the purity of Mary. This was always by the Holy Spirit, and we're to to think of it that way. He doesn't want us even for a moment to think otherwise about the purity of Mary. Now with this in mind, let's look at the announcement of the angel Gabriel when he comes to Mary and explains to her how this happens, this conception by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Notice he he says that over and over again just to emphasize that Mary was, in fact, pure. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. And kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? 
The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is, was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now notice again the reiteration of the purity of Mary in that text. And in verse 35, the angel Gabriel explains clearly to Mary how this happens. How is it that she will conceive by the Holy Spirit? The angel explains essentially that in this one instance in human history, God is going to suspend the natural process of conception and instead supernaturally cause Mary to conceive by the creative power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Matthew means when he just refers to this in a simple statement, by the Holy Spirit. The same God who spoke the universe into existence is going to supernaturally create a child within the womb of Mary. Matthew includes this description to ensure that we don't ever doubt Mary's integrity or purity even for a moment. But nonetheless, at this point in the story, it leaves Joseph with a really, really significant conundrum. How is he supposed to respond to such shocking news? Well, that brings us to a second aspect of this wonderful account of our Lord's conception. Aspect number two, a righteous response. A righteous response. Look back at the text with me in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Notice again the reference to him as her husband, highlighting the fact that this was a legally binding marriage covenant. And the reference to Joseph as a righteous man simply means that he was a true worshiper of Yahweh, that he would have been a follower of the law. He would have wanted to do what would have been a pleasing to the Lord in this situation. Joseph's character as a righteous man puts him in a really tight spot. Because on the one hand, he would have been very familiar with Deuteronomy 22 that we read earlier, as well as Deuteronomy 24, which outlines that divorce is permissible in instances like this. Under Roman rule, the Jews were not allowed to practice the death penalty, so Mary's not in danger of that in this case. But Joseph would have known that historically she would have been in danger of this because that's how serious it was in God's sight. But on the other hand, Joseph apparently does really care for Mary. He doesn't wish to embarrass her or put her through a, a public trial of divorce in which she could be openly shamed. And so he comes to a different solution. It says that he planned to send her away secretly. Now that's referring to the process of divorce, but D.A. Carson notes that in the event that a public divorce, which would have been very open, was not desired, a private divorce could be obtained with only two witnesses being present. And so apparently that's what Joseph had determined to do. I'm just going to do it quietly, we'll preserve her, her reputation, and then we will move on and will obey the law. Understand, it says that this was a righteous man. This is a righteous response. He's saying, I can't let this slide. Think about it this way. If Joseph chooses to stay with Mary, in spite of the fact that she is now pregnant, then what would be the obvious conclusion of everyone else about Joseph and Mary? 
Obviously, they would have naturally assumed, well, if he's staying with her, it must mean it's his child. And both of them are guilty now of this sin of fornication. But Joseph, of course, knows it's not his child. And so he begins to weigh his options, and he chooses to send her away with a bill of divorce privately. But obviously, before he can act, God acts. And this brings us to aspect number three, where we'll spend the bulk of our time. An angelic reassurance. An angelic reassurance. Looking back at the text, verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Let's stop there. Obviously, he's considered this. He's come to a mental conclusion, but thankfully has has yet to act. And really, something happens. It's really the only thing that could happen that would change Joseph's mind. God himself intervenes and sends an angel to speak to Joseph. The text says, behold, it's like suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Just as the angel Gabriel came to Mary, an angel comes here to Joseph. It could have been Gabriel, but we don't know. We're not told. And he reveals something truly astonishing to Joseph. Again, I know you know this story, but you've got to take yourself back. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Just feel what he would have felt for a moment. In this angelic announcement, it transforms this narrative from a sad but normal story to a monumental event in human history. The angel begins by calling Joseph by his name. It says, Joseph, son of David. Obviously, we're familiar with the name Joseph, but he also calls him by a specific title. And this is not haphazard on the part of the angel. It's a clue that this title, Son of David, is going to play into this narrative in a very important way. The truth is, when we study the New Testament, we don't really know that much about Joseph. We know from this text that he was a righteous man. We know from Matthew 13, 55, that Jesus is referred to as the carpenter's son. That's where we come up with the idea that Joseph must have been a carpenter by trade. But other than that, there's really one other key detail that the New Testament emphasizes about Joseph, and that is the fact that he was in the kingly bloodline of David. That's why this description of Joseph is so important for us to understand. Obviously, Joseph knew that he was in the bloodline of David. We know that because in Luke chapter 2, When it comes time for a census and everyone has to go back to where they're from, he goes back to Bethlehem, the text says, because he was from the lineage and bloodline of David. Luke 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. But understand that even though Joseph would have known he was in the bloodline and lineage of David, it can't have been common for him to be referred to in this way. After all, it's been hundreds of years now since a king has sat on the throne of Israel. They've been ruled by several different nations currently occupied by Rome. 
And so I don't think we should picture this as something his friends would call him on the playground, Joseph, son of David. And so I think it would have struck him as significant, as it ought to strike us as significant, that the angel refers to him in this way, Joseph, son of David. It points to the fact that his bloodline, his lineage, is going to play a crucial role. And of course, we now know what the Jews knew very well, that the Messiah was prophesied to be one who would come from the kingly line of David. Look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. There we have it, on the throne of David, not to mention in the covenant God makes with David, he promises that one will sit on the throne of David forever. We see that fulfilled in this baby that is growing in the womb of Mary. Now understand that while Joseph would not be the biological father of Jesus, by being the adopted father of Jesus, Jesus inherits this kingly succession. He becomes a son of David. Not to mention that Mary also, as it turns out, is from the bloodline of David. We see that from the genealogy in Luke's account. And so on both sides, Jesus is from David's lineage, but it's Joseph who comes through the line of Solomon, the kingly line of David. And so it is, the fact that Joseph is a son of David becomes the key reason that this chosen couple is to be the, the parents of the Messiah. With that title in mind, the angel now simply seeks to reassure Joseph in his taking of Mary. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Of course, for all the reasons we've already outlined, Joseph was, was rightly nervous and afraid to take her as his wife. But now the angel explains why Joseph does not need to be afraid to marry this woman, even though she's pregnant outside of wedlock. It says, here's the reason. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The angel confirms to Joseph that Mary's not being unfaithful to him or to God, but instead this child has come by no normal means. You know, we often talk about the miraculous birth of Christ, but more technically, the miracle surrounds the conception of Christ. When Mary gave birth, it was just a normal birth like any other lady who's given birth in human history. It's this conception that is the miracle. And so next week, we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about the significance of this miracle of the virgin conception. So I'm going to leave that for next week. And I want us to focus our attention this morning on the actual words that the angel says to Joseph next. Because what he says next is, is so significant that it goes well beyond Mary and Joseph. And this is a statement that will affect every human in all of human history, reaching all the way into today and beyond. Because look at what the angel says. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
First of all, she will bear a son. This is a male child. He is the child, in fact, that is fulfilling a prophecy all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that one would come, a seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. But he also is a child who's to receive a prophetic name. But before we get to the name itself, I want you to notice this detail. He says, Mary is going to bear a son, but then the angel says, you, Joseph, shall call his name. Joseph's role is to name this child. Now, why is that significant? It's because in the naming of the child, Joseph will officially be accepting this child as his own adopted son. And in doing so, confer upon him the the lineage of David. He's now, Joseph, not only a descendant of David, but this royal line of succession will pass to this adopted son when he gives him a name. But he's not just to give him any name. The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the, the name Jesus obviously is very familiar to us, or at least hopefully it is. But maybe you haven't known that Jesus is actually the Greek form of the Hebrew word, or name, Joshua, which was also a very familiar, popular name, obviously, because of Joshua. There are several Joshuas in the Old Testament, but particularly the one that took over after Moses. But the name Jesus, or, or Joshua, means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. So obviously, with a name like that, this is not going to be just any child. This is no ordinary name because it's no ordinary child. This is a prophetic name. It's a name that describes the work that this child has been sent to accomplish. And if there's any doubt about that, the author, or the the, the angel, rather, explains it for us. Here's why I want you to name him Yahweh saves. It says, for he will save his people from their sins. The reason the child is named Yahweh saves is because it serves as a pronouncement of all that he has come to do. This baby is sent to be a savior. But notice the specific wording here. There's a profound truth here just in the word order. Because first he says, I want you to name him Yahweh saves. But then the angel does not say that that Joseph should name him this because God is going to save his people through the son. No, he says, I want you to name him Yahweh saves because he, that is the baby, will save his people from their sins. The pronoun he actually is in an emphatic position in the Greek text. That means it comes early in the sentence. In fact, the pronoun in the Greek language does not even have to be added for you to understand the verb. Here it is. It's added to emphasize he, this one, the one in Mary's womb, he will save his people from their sins. Now, stay with me. If his name is Yahweh saves, and he is the one who will save, what does it say about the baby? He is Yahweh. Name him Yahweh saves because he's going to save his people from their sins. This angel has just said to Joseph, God is in the womb of Mary. And of course, this is 
really shouldn't be a shocker to him in one sense because Isaiah's already said this. We just read it. Isaiah 9.6. Did you notice the names? I mean, just think about this. The names that, that Isaiah says will rest upon this child. Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Think about that. The baby is going to be called Eternal Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. An angel has just said to you, you are going to be the adopted father of the Messiah who is God, Yahweh, in human flesh. What an unthinkable privilege. What an unthinkable responsibility. The adopted father of God in human flesh. And this privilege goes far beyond just Joseph and Mary getting to raise the God-man in their home. Because this baby's come to be a savior, not just for Mary and Joseph, it says, but for a whole group of people. Now we, we not only know the, identi- the, the identity of, of Christ, the Messiah, he is holy God, but we also now know his mission. Because he says he will save his people from their sins. We've already noted who he is. Now we have to talk about who he came to save. Notice it says he will save his people. The Messiah, who is God in human flesh, is coming with a very specific mission. He's going to save his people. That is not the people that he belongs to, but the people that belong to him. He is coming to save them. Notice the tenderness in that thought. He's coming to save his people, the ownership. He's coming on a rescue mission then to save specific individuals that are known to him. They're his people. Now, if you were a Jewish person at this time and you hear this, he's coming to save his people, you automatically would assume what? He's coming to save us, the Jews. And you'd be right, in part. The rest of the New Testament explains it's much more than that. In fact, later in in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is brought just as an infant to be dedicated at the temple, there's a man there named Simeon. And God's told Simeon that before he dies, he's going to get to see the promised child, the Messiah. And then when he sees Jesus, he says something really interesting. Let's read together from Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord... You are releasing your slave to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. In these words, we see that that this baby has come as a savior to provide salvation, not just for the Jews, but for all kinds of people. People from every nation, Gentiles, Israelites, all people. 
Beyond that, in his ministry, Jesus would, would narrow this and, and explain what this means, that he came to save his people specifically. I love in John chapter 10, as Jesus there is interacting with the Jews, and, and they're, they're going back and forth, they're accusing him of different things, they're, they're resisting him and not believing in him. This is what he says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. Listen to that. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, specifically, his sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. That's the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Then later, in verse 24, he continues The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now listen to this, verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now when we take all of this together, we begin to get an understanding of what the text means here when it says that he will save his people. In eternity past, God the Father determined by his own sovereign, gracious will that he would save a group of chosen sinners by the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of his own son. He gave those souls as a gift to his son. That's what it means there in John 10, 29. The Father gave them to me. The Father gave these souls to the Son. The Son came and perfectly completed the will of the Father, sacrificing himself, and by his own blood redeemed his people, which was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. What I want you to understand is that when this baby is in the womb, he comes to save a specific people, his people. He didn't come to make a potential sacrifice. Jesus didn't come and say, okay, I've made a sacrifice, and I really hope some people want to take advantage of it. He came on a rescue mission and said, these are my people given to me by the Father, and I will rescue them, and I will give eternal life to them, and no one will take it from them. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. I love the tenderness in that, for he will save his people. But save them from what? For he will save his people from their sins. The angel says to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. The rest of the New Testament describes that. It fills that out to say that he came to save his people from sin's penalty and sin's power. That means that he came to save them from the wrath of God they deserved for their sin, the penalty for their sin. 
but also the enslaving power of sin so that while we do still sin in this life, we are not slaves of sin. We now have a choice by God's grace, by the working of the Holy Spirit within us, to walk away from that sin and to grow in Christ's likeness in growing measure. Now, now that concept is fairly obvious to most of us on this side of the cross. Most of us have heard this. Jesus came to save us from our sins. But what we have to understand is that for the Jew living at this time, this verse would have been a little bit confusing. Because they had commonly misunderstood the precise reason the Messiah was coming. The Jews believed that Messiah was coming to save them. If you asked them, is the, Jew, is the Messiah coming to save? They would have said, absolutely. But when you said, save from what? They would likely have said, from Roman oppression. The Messiah is coming as a warrior king to, to take by force over this, this Roman oppression and he will sit on the throne and we will be back in the place of prominent, prominence and peace will be ushered in for all time. That's what they were understanding the Messiah to be doing. In fact, this is interesting, even after the resurrection, so Jesus has died, risen from the grave, the disciples are still thinking this way. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, listen to this, post-resurrection, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They're saying, okay, we, we did all that. That was awesome. Is, is this it? Is now the time that you're finally going to come and restore Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, to be fair, the Jews were not entirely wrong in their expectation. The Old Testament did prophesy that the Messiah would come as a warrior king who would restore the nation of Israel. In fact, if you caught it, even in the Annunciation to Mary, Gabriel refers to this son being a king and reigning. But it was also prophesied in the Old Testament that this Messiah would come as a suffering servant to give his own life to save his people from their sins. What the Old Testament did not clarify on purpose was that there was a gap of time between those two things. In fact, theologians often use the illustration of a mountain range when we're talking about prophecy. It's because if you, if you look at a mountain range from a long distance away, there's an optical illusion. It looks like all of those mountain peaks are right up against one another. Only when you're on top of one of those peaks can you now see there's this huge expanse, a huge valley from one mountain to the next. That's what happens with Old Testament prophecies. Often within one verse, there'll be two comments about the Messiah. Only one of them refers to his first coming. The second refers to his second coming. And that gap of time is what we now know because Jesus revealed it to us in his first coming. But make no mistake about it. Jesus will come as the conquering king. We see that in Revelation 19. Listen to this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fi fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, Jesus will come as the conquering king. But in our text this morning, it's significant to understand that in his first advent, he came for the express purpose of saving his people from their sins. He came to reconcile them to God, as we've seen in Hebrews, by his own blood. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But you see, the Jews in Jesus' day rejected him and took offense at him because he came preaching a message of repentance from sin and not of deliverance from Roman oppression. The Jews were looking for a much-desired change in their life circumstances. But Jesus explained that their greatest need was not relief from Roman oppression, but reconciliation to God. And this highlights the truth that the gospel is a call to repentance and faith, not a promise to circumstantial change. And there's a message here for us that we can't miss. Because many preachers and teachers today have perverted the gospel by twisting it into a message of circumstantial blessing. They've essentially created a group of people hungry for circumstantial change through Jesus, just like the Jews were hungry for circumstantial change. They preach that the gospel is a promise that if you come to Jesus, it will immediately fix your marriage and your bank account and your health and your job security. But friends, we learn from this text that from the womb, Jesus is said to have come to save his people from their sins. That's why he has come. And that, and that alone, is the gospel message. He did not come to change your temporal circumstances, but your eternal circumstance. After all, what is the point of an improved, prosperous life if at the end of it you're condemned for eternity to hell? Or to put it in biblical language, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Brothers and sisters, run from any teacher or supposed gospel that promises a temporal change in circumstance as the primary outcome of the gospel. The angel declares that he has come to save his people from their sins. Now, I realize that perhaps some of you may still be distracted and burdened by the two words we studied earlier, his people. That is a concept that has caused much concern and consternation for many people, this idea of Jesus coming to die for his people specifically. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're desperately wondering, how do I know if I'm one of his people? Well, friend, take heart this morning because it is not mystical or magical and unraveling who his people are. In fact, Jesus explains it to us this way in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes, in, believes will have in him eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is true that Jesus is an expression of God's love for the world. That is true. But only those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God who came to give his life as a sacrifice for their sins will be saved from the wrath of God. Remember Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. As the gospel goes out through the reading or preaching of the word of God, it's as if Jesus is calling his sheep to himself. And those who are his will hear in that gospel message the true voice of Christ and will come running to him as his sheep because of the work of regeneration that he does within their heart. Those who belong to the Son are those who repent of their sin and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you desire true salvation this morning, if you want to know, am I one of his people, then understand you must come to Jesus on his terms. Not seeking a change in circumstance, not seeking for a better life or a better marriage or more money, but coming to him as a beggar, as one who is a sinner who desperately needs to be reconciled to God. Coming to him on the terms that the angel said would be his terms. He has come to save his people from their sins. If you will come to Jesus with a humble heart, recognizing that you were one of those sinners who desperately needs his forgiveness, if you'll repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, then friend, you will be saved. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It's important for us as we think about these things, as we draw this to a close, really to focus on two key concepts. Number one, I would call all of us to marvel at Christ's incarnation. Marvel at Christ's incarnation. Through his name and the angelic exaltation of his person, we come to understand that the child called Jesus is none other than mighty God, eternal Father in human flesh. If we're going to hold on to the significance of Christmas this season, we must fill our minds with the wonder of the incarnation. Bring your mind back to these truths. Intentionally meditate on the fact that Jesus is the God-man. Don't ever get over the incredible blessing of the miracle of the incarnation. That holy God would condescend to take on flesh that he might redeem us. Emmanuel, God with us. But secondly, rejoice over Christ's salvation. Rejoice over Christ's salvation. He came to save his people from their sins. Such a simple statement on the surface, and yet so much deep, profound meaning. Even in the womb, Jesus was destined for the cross. A baby born to die. Don't ever stop rejoicing over Christ's glorious salvation. Listen, your circumstances will ebb and flow with greater volatility than the stock market. In fact, Jesus warned that for his people that life for most of them would get worse, not better. That they would experience what he experienced, persecution, 
hatred. He says, if they hated me, they will hate you. Christmas can be a very sad and lonely time if we allow ourselves to dwell on our earthly circumstances. But that's not the point of Christmas. That might be the world's version of Christmas. But Christmas is so much more than just time with family and food and fun, even though those things are great. Christmas is the celebration that a baby was born who came to save us from our sins. May we never get over it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how good you are. Mighty God, eternal Father, born as a baby, born to die. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for the incarnation. We're so grateful for your salvation that is so richly offered to us. God, help us never to take it for granted, to remember the great gift of Jesus Christ. And as we enter into this Christmas season, God, may we not only enjoy the the many fun things that come with this time of year, but may we first and foremost celebrate the person of Jesus Christ. May he be ever in our minds, ever in our hearts, ever in our conversation. May he fill our homes. May we speak of him with freedom and joy. For it is he that we celebrate. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.